Will you please pray with me? Now, Lord, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning. So I recently heard a story about the Reverend Billy Graham, and it was one from the early 2000s. And apparently it goes like this. He'd just finished a tour of the Florida East Coast and was taking a limousine to the airport. Well, having never driven a limo, he decided he would ask the chauffeur if he could take a turn and, and drive the limousine to the airport. Well, the chauffeur, didn't have, he didn't have much choice, really. So he got in the back of the limo, and Billy took the wheel. Well, pretty soon, he turned onto I-95, and he accelerated to about 90 miles per hour. Well, wham, right away, the blue lights of a state highway patrol flashed in his rearview mirror. And he pulled over, of course, and a trooper came to his window. And when the trooper saw who it was, he said, well, hold on a minute, I, I just need to put a call in. So the trooper, he radioed in, and he asked for the chief. And when the chief came on the line, he said, I have a a really important person I've just pulled over, and I need to know what to do. Well, the chief replied, who is it? Not Ted Kennedy again, is it? <laughs> and the trooper said, no, no, even more important. It isn't Governor Jeb Bush, is it? Said, asked the chief. No, even more important, replied the trooper. It isn't President George Bush, is it? No, replied the trooper, even more important. Well, who in the world is it? Screamed the chief at the other end of the line. And the trooper responded, well, I don't know for sure, but I think it might be Jesus, because his chauffeur is Billy Graham. We're <laughs> <clears throat> spending a couple of months <laughs> looking at what it is that Christians believe, or at least what the vast majority of Orthodox small O Christians have believed for 2,000 years. And we're doing this because what we believe matters. And what we believe about God matters most of all. And the way we're going to do this is by looking each week at a small part of the Nicene Creed. That's the words that we'll say each week after the sermon. And this week, we're beginning to look at what Christians believe about who Jesus is. Hence the tenuous link to my joke. (laughs) Jews believe that Jesus was a preacher or rabbi who performed miracles. Muslims believe Jesus was a prophet and a wise teacher and one of God's highest-ranked prophets. Hindus believe Jesus was a holy man, a wise teacher, and is a god with a small g among millions of other gods. And Sikhs view Jesus as a highly-ranked holy man or saint. But none of them believe, as Christians do, that Jesus is the one and only God and that this is absolutely crucial to who he is. None of them believe that, except for Christians. So let's take a look at why Christians believe this and why it matters to you and to me. First of all, I want to give you a little background on the creeds, and I would have done this last week, except we had a baptism and so on and so forth, and there just wasn't time. And of course, I would hate to miss the opportunity to geek out on some church history just for you guys. I know you guys always tell me how much you love it when I do that. So here we go. The word creed probably brings to mind different things for different people. Perhaps you're reminded of the dubious 1990s alternative rock band with arms wide open, etc. I won't sing for you. Or maybe you're reminded of an even more dubious and very creepy character from the NBC sitcom, The Office of the same name, Creed. Or perhaps it simply, uh, simply brings back painful memories of sitting in catechism classes. This is for the Catholics amongst you. And being forced to memorize large amounts of text. 
But the word creed actually comes from the Latin word credo, which simply means I believe, or credimus, which means we believe, which is what we say. Now, while not all religions have creeds, Christians aren't the first. The Jewish people themselves have recited the Shema from Deuteronomy for thousands of years. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. While that's pretty short, you can already see the beginnings of the Christian creeds that are still said today. You see, the Shema has three key features. Number one, it's a communal commitment, not simply individual. It's said together. Secondly, it's exclusive, citing one God that the Israelites owe their allegiance to. And then thirdly, it's a personal commitment, calling the Jews to love God. It's not just a mental assent to belief. Well, as we'll discover, the Christian creeds are similar. They give a call for communal, personal, and exclusive commitment. And the two main creeds that the church uses to this day, the fairly brief Apostles' Creed that we said in our baptism service last week, and then the longer Nicene Creed that we'll say after this sermon, well, they both contain these three elements. But we're going to focus on the second of these, as this is the one that we say each Sunday. We're going to look at the Nicene Creed. And this creed finds its origins and also its name in the Council of Nicaea, which was held in 325 AD. That's about 300 years after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And the council was a gathering of Christian bishops convened in the Turkish city of Nicaea by the Roman Emperor Constantine. The emperor invited all 1,800 bishops of the known Christian church within the known Roman Empire at that time, but only 300 came. As you can imagine, it wasn't a case of simply getting on a jet plane and flying to Nicaea, right? It was quite a big ordeal. But they managed to get 300 of them. And the reason they came together was to discuss the question of the real meaning and significance of Jesus Christ. You see, while the church had long believed that Jesus was both God and man, this was now actually being called into question by the teachings of a North African priest by the name of Arius. Arius was teaching that Jesus, the Son of God, had a beginning. And he maintained that the Son possessed neither the eternity nor the true divinity of the Father, but was rather made God only by the Father's permission and power. Interestingly, I was looking at some stats recently, and there was a 2014 study done by uh, Lifeway. And this is actually a belief that's still held by 71% of all Orthodox Christians that Jesus was made by the Father. Well, soon Arius' doctrine had spread far beyond his own region, and it became a topic of discussion and disturbance for the entire church throughout the whole Roman Empire. And this was now a powerful force in the Roman world, because just a little bit previously, in 313 AD, Emperor Constantine had actually legalized it, uh, legalized that you could be a Christian, uh, as opposed to the first three centuries of the Christian faith. So therefore, he wanted to bring an end to this dispute. It was causing trouble in his empire. And so he held the first ever ecumenical uh, council of the church. And it was here at Nicaea that the first version of the creed was formulated. And I say the first version because it actually took another 50 years to finish this. There were other additions that were deemed necessary as people started saying these things. And so it wasn't until the second ecumenical council held in Constantinople in 381 AD, 56 years later, that the version that we all recognize that we've been saying for about 1,700 years as a church, well, it wasn't till then that it was actually finished. So let's take a closer look at what it has to say 
about Jesus. And as I mentioned last week, the creed is written in a Trinitarian structure, okay? So it focuses on God the Father first, then it goes to God the Son, and then it goes to God the Holy Spirit. The second section, though, devoted to the Son of God, it's the longest section of the entire creed. And this section breaks into two parts, covering both the divinity of Jesus and the humanity of Jesus. And this week, we're going to look at his divinity. And then the next few weeks, we'll be spent looking at his humanity. But always remembering that he is simultaneously fully human and fully divine, something the creed is at pains to express. First of all, then, this section of the creed, and you can find it, I think, on the inside of your... No, it's not. Is it on the screens? Do we have it on the screens? Let's see. Yeah, there you go. Let's leave that on the screens for now. So first of all, then, this section of the creed unapologetically proclaims the deity of Jesus. He is the Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. No, he wasn't created, nor was he adopted by the Father, but he has always been and always will be. As John puts in our gospel reading today, in the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son, From the Father, or as of the only Son, or begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And the word begotten, which isn't in all the texts, but it is uh, implied there, it comes from the Greek word monegenes, meaning being the only one of its kind or class, unique in kind. And the Apostle John is primarily concerned with demonstrating that Jesus is the Son of God. So he uses the word monegenes to highlight Jesus as uniquely. God's Son, that is sharing the same divine nature as God, as opposed to believers who are God's sons and daughters by adoption. We see that in Ephesians chapter 1. Jesus is God's one and only Son and has always been so. You see, the bottom line is that when we use terms such as Father and terms such as Son to describe God and Jesus, they're actually human terms, aren't they? They're to help us understand the relationship between the persons of the Trinity. But the analogy breaks down if you try to take it too far and to teach as some pseudo-Christian cult, such as Jehovah's Witnesses, maybe you've had them knock on your door at one stage or another, that they teach that Jesus was literally begotten, as in he was produced or created by God the Father, something that makes him less than God. At its most basic then, what the writers of the creed are trying to say is, Jesus is God. He is God. Or as one theologian put it, God is Jesus. When you see Jesus, you are seeing God, not just because Jesus is God, but also because God is Jesus. Jesus is the one who shows us who God is and what God is like. They're saying that to know God, we need simply to look at who Jesus is, something that John also says. And yet even to this day, the divinity of Christ is played down by many people, including Christians. Many of them, consciously or not, they subscribe to a modernized form of the Arian heresy, choosing to read the New Testament selectively. One of the best-known examples of this approach to Jesus is that of Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson was actually devoted to the teachings of Jesus Christ, but he didn't always agree with how they're interpreted by biblical sources, including the writers of the four Gospels, whom he considered to be untrustworthy correspondents. 
So Jefferson created his own gospel by taking a sharp instrument, perhaps a penknife, uh, and he took it to existing copies in the New Testament and pasted up his own account of Jesus' philosophy, distinguishing it from what he called the corruption of schismatizing followers. Jefferson, like a number of the other founding fathers, was a deist. In other words, he believed that while there was a supreme being somewhere out there, he didn't believe that this being intervenes in the universe or that it can be known personally, something that is clearly contrary to the writings of both the Old and the New Testaments. But it's clear in all four of the Gospels that Jesus is recognized by his followers as the Son of God. None of the Gospel writers fails to mention this, and they make it clear that Jesus also believed he was God's Son. Yes, he did and said things that clearly alluded to his deity. And it wasn't missed by the religious leaders that he interacted with and who ultimately had him killed. Some examples of this are these. First of all, he claimed to have the authority to forgive sin. And the religious leaders thought to themselves that he was blaspheming when he did that. Secondly, he called God his father. And he equated his work with the fathers. And they tried all the harder to kill him when he did that. Thirdly, he said that he and the Father are one, and they actually picked up stones to kill him because they said he was blaspheming, claiming to be God. And then fourthly, he said that he would sit at the right hand of the Mighty One and come on the clouds of heaven, and they said he was blaspheming, and they contemned him to death. The Pharisees knew who Jesus was claiming to be, and so did Jesus. As the current Catholic scholar Luke Timothy Johnson puts it, to be Christian then in any significant sense of the term is to claim that God is fully present in the human Jesus in a manner and fullness not realized in any other creature. Now you might say, well, why does that matter? I mean, ultimately, why why are we spending this time looking at this stuff? It seems pretty heavy for a Sunday morning. I just woke up. Come on. Please give me a chance here. It's amazing I got out of bed. (laughs) Well, it matters to the apostles and it matters to the writers of the creed because if Jesus isn't God, then he can't save us. And all that we do this morning is meaningless. It's pointless. You could sleep in in bed, okay? It wouldn't matter. You see, the name given to Jesus actually comes from the Hebrew word Yeshua, meaning God saves. God saves. And Christ, which is not Uh, which is not his last name, as some people have incorrectly told me, but his title, okay, means the anointed one. He's the anointed one, the Messiah. Jesus, then, is God's Messiah who's come to save us. That's what his name means, God's Messiah who's come to save us. He's the one prophesied about throughout the whole of the Old Testament, such as in our reading from Isaiah 9 this morning. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. 700 years before his birth, he was being prophesied about. And he comes to save us from our sins, something we cannot do ourselves, and he comes to defeat death once and for all. You see, by one man, that's Adam, sin and death entered the world. And by one God-man, 100% God and 100% man, Jesus, sin and death are defeated once and for all. This is God's plan for redemption for the people he's made and that he loves. You see, Jesus comes not as a self-help guru, but as the one who has the power to set us free from slavery to sin and to rescue and heal us from all of our brokenness, 
all the things in our lives that we'd rather not tell other people about, all those things, he can set us free from them because he is God. And he can only do this if he's God, because only God is able to be the perfect, sinless sacrifice for all of mankind. Only he could live a perfect life and then bear the condemnation for our sins, becoming simultaneously the judge and the one judged. And so perfectly satisfying both his justice and his love in order to offer to us free forgiveness. That's why Paul writes in his letter to the Colossians, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to him uh, himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. To quote Luke Timothy Johnson again, we are Christians in the first place, after all, not because Jesus was a splendid teacher of morals in first century Palestine, or because he had a particularly attractive vision for the ordering of society. We are Christians because somewhat in Christ, through the sacraments, through prayer, through our suffering, through the words of our neighbors, or through the encounter of strangers, we have in Christ's name been touched and even transformed by God. It's certainly my story, and I know that's the story of many of you as well, is God's transformation in your life. See, encountering Jesus has saved and it's transformed us in a way that we could never have done on our own. And this is the grace upon grace that John speaks of in John chapter 1, and that God lavishes upon us over and over again, both in our moment of salvation and then in our lifetime of sanctification. So I wonder, as we come to a close, who is Jesus to you? Is he your Savior, and is he your Lord? You see, when we say this section of the creed, we also proclaim Jesus as Lord. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. Now, Lord is someone who's a ruler, someone with authority. It's the kind of person you come across in Game of Thrones, right? He rules a territory, okay? And Christians recognize Jesus as the ruler of all things and the one who has authority over even their own hearts. We owe him everything we are, including our worship and obedience. For the early Christians to say such a thing was an enormous risk. The Roman emperor demanded the total allegiance of his subjects. And if it was found out that Christ was their Lord, then they risked execution, being thrown to the lions perhaps or crucified. But they knew that even the possibility of death was worth the risk of knowing and following Jesus as Lord. What about you though? Again, who do you say he is? Let me leave you with a fairly popular quote from C.S. Lewis about the real options that we have when we answer the question. In his book, Mere Christianity, Lewis writes this. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. 
But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. See, either Jesus is Lord of all, or he is Lord of nothing. Just don't ignore him or try to say that he's something in the middle. That makes a mockery of his life and the lives of billions of Christian followers since his time. Today, will you follow him as Lord and as Savior, giving everything to the one who loves you and made you and wants to be in relationship with you? This is the response that the writers of the creed are hoping for, but more importantly, that Jesus himself is hoping for from you. Let us pray. Oh, come, Holy Spirit. Come and grow in us faith, Lord Jesus. Faith in you. You, Lord Jesus, we believe are Lord of all. You are the Son of God. And Lord, where we have doubts, would you increase our faith? Would you increase our trust in you that we might follow you more closely this day and every day? That we might know you. That we might be in relationship with you. That you might transform us, making us into your likeness more and more each and every day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.